This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Leica Microsystems. Leica Microsystems develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound and stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, confocal laser scanning and super resolution microscopy with related imaging systems, electron microscopy sample preparation, and surgical microscopy. Today's presentation is titled Array Tomography for SEM 3D Reconstruction and is being presented by Frank Assen from IST in Austria and Robert Ranner from Leica Microsystems. Frank has a bachelor's degree in technical medicine and a master's degree in reconstructive medicine from the University of Twente in the Netherlands. He is currently a doctoral student in the group of Michael Sixt at IST Austria in Vienna, Austria, where he is working on the role of stromal cells and lymph node swelling during inflammation. Robert Ranner is the product manager in EM specimen preparation at Leica Microsystems Nanotechnology Division and is also based in Vienna. He completed his education in optics and mechatronics before joining Leica Microsystems in 1985. As product manager, Robert is responsible for ultramicrotomy, ion etching, and solid-state preparation instruments. He has 15 years of application experience in industrial sample preparation for transmission electron microscopy and scanning electron microscopy. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Frank and Robert at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash artos3d, that's bit.ly slash artos3d, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Frank and Robert, for the presentation. Thank you for the nice introduction, and hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into this webinar. My name is Frank Assen. And I work as a doctoral student in the lab of Professor Michael Sixt at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. So today I will be telling you about array tomography from a scientist's perspective and share some of our results while explaining how we got to there. So a little bit more about me. I'm working on the, uh, the understanding of uh, how lymph nodes are swelling, which is the hallmark of adaptive immunity. I will start by uh, first um, going through the background and telling you a bit more about the function and organization of the lymph node. And I will briefly go into um, the lymph node filter function and the access of information. Upon which I will discuss our research goals that we uh, try to answer by array tomography. But before I get to array tomography, I will um, first briefly and talk about some applications and limitations of various EM techniques to visualize structures in 3D before I go um, and tell you about how we acquired the data and uh, went all the way back to um, for how we acquired the data and uh, got our 3D restructures. And then in the end, I will um, briefly talk about the interpretation of 3D reconstructions. So we are working with mouse models to study lymphoid organs, which are the organs of the immune system, of which uh, three types can be distinguished. So you have the primary lymphoid organs, such as the bone marrow, where the immune cells derive from a hematopoietic stem cell. And um, there's also the thymus in which T cells are being selected. We are working with secondary lymphoid organs which are um, the spleen, pyre patches in the gut, and the lymph nodes. So on this schematic, you can see an overview of the different lymph nodes that can be found in the mouse. And we're working with um, skin-draining lymph nodes, which are the popliteal lymph node and the inguinal lymph node, of which the popliteal lymph node is approximately a millimeter in diameter, and the inguinal lymph node uh, approximately twice 
the size. So lastly, there are also tertiary lymphoid organs, and these resemble the secondary lymphoid organs that um, but they develop de novo in the adult organism, and this uh, often in context of cancer, autoimmunity, and transplantation. Uh, so a bit more about the function of the lymph nodes. Um, so dendritic cells are the cells that link the innate and the adaptive immune system. These cells are constantly patrolling the body in search of foreign antigens that they then can take up and physically present to the cells of the adaptive immune system. So once a dendritic cell is encountering an antigen, it will mature and upregulate specific chemokine receptors that help to guide the cell towards lymphatic vessels that migrate into the lymph nodes where it can find these T cells. Um, it is here that the DC has to interact with T cells to initiate an immune response. So T cells are constantly recirculating the body. So they home from the blood circulation into the lymph node where they move around and search for dendritic cells to present them these foreign antigens. So after about four hours, the T cell will exit the lymph node via efferent lymphatics that then eventually drain into a collective lymph vessel and then drain again into the venous blood circulation where the cycle is uh, then completed. So dendritic cells are abundantly available. Uh, however, lymphocytes, while actually also abundantly uh, available, are very highly uh, specialized cells that can only recognize a specific antigen. So that means um, copy numbers of a specific antigen recognizing lymphocytes, lymphocytes are low and activated lymphocytes therefore need to expand in numbers uh, to gather a population sufficient to invade a, a tissue that is infected. So to put that into numbers, for an average antigen, the number of specific T cells uh, range in the, in the number of a few hundreds. So for dendritic cells to find one of these specific T cells in the whole body imposes a kind of a needle in the hay problem, in which an encounter between uh, those cells is very unlikely to happen in the short term. Since fast clearance of foreign pathogens is of the essence for whole survival, um, nature came up with a solution to enhance the likelihood of these encounters, and these are the, the lymph nodes. The lymph nodes act as a rendezvous point for the immune system. It's here that cells are moving around and mixing efficiently to enhance the likelihood of dendritic cells to interact with specific T cells that then can recognize an antigen and start an adaptive immune response. So therefore, lymph nodes efficiently help the body to overcome the needle in the haystack problem. So next, I want to talk about the organization uh, and function of stroma cells. So actually 98% of the whole lymph node is made up of cells from the immune system. So the remaining 2% are the stroma cells and they form the backbone of the organ. They aid both in structural support um, of the organ as well as facilitating the adaptive immune response. So here in the left image, uh, one can see an inguinal lymph node in which all stroma cells are labeled. So the main stroma cell type in this, in this organ is the fibroblastic reticular cell, which is here labeled in green, which forms almost all the extracellular matrix in the organ and also forms an intricate network all throughout. And the stroma cells are also important in compartmentalizing the organ. So one can distinguish, uh, for instance, a T-cell zone, uh, B-cell follicles, and a medullary area. And by secreting uh, selective chemokines um, by, the, by the different stroma cell population, they can retract and retain um, different immune subsets, uh, immune cell subsets, and, and organize the, the lymph nodes into different compartments. So when we have a closer look at the T cell zone, which is the area that we are interested in, and one can really appreciate how densely packed your organ is and the FRCs forming a network throughout this zone. When we have a closer look at the FRCs, uh, 
we can see that it consists of um, of a collagen core, which is about 500 nanometers in diameter, in which the FRCs are flanking this structure. So this ECM component is also called uh, a conduit system. Um, I have to mention that FRCs are also highly contractile cells expressing alpha smooth muscle actin and can regulate the tension inside the lymph nodes. So besides um, structural support, lymphoid stroma also facilitates a number of immunological functions of which I, I named a couple before. So the importance of these immunological functions are evident um, as experiments where these FLCs are ablated in the adult mouse and lose, uh, lead to complete loss of adaptive immunity. Just want to mention a couple of these functions. <clears throat> As mentioned before, um, the, the lymphoid stroma cells are important for compartmentalizing the organ. Um, and they're also providing um, structural guidance for the migrating cells. So in the movie here on the left, that I start now, uh, one can see all the stroma cells in the lymph node labeled in green. So this is a two photon intravital movie of the lymph node where just a couple of the T cells are labeled in, in red. And one can appreciate how these cells are moving over, the, over this intricate network. So the FRCs are providing a, a structural guidance, but they also secrete chemokines and provide integrin ligands to support this migration. Furthermore, they also secrete pro-survival factors for the lymphocytes. As I mentioned, they can regulate tension in the lymph node and they have also been shown to modulate the immune response. And lastly, I want to uh, name one, uh, another um, important function of the lymph node, which is its filter function. So in normal physiological conditions, interstitial fluid is constantly drained from the periphery uh, via the uh, lymphatic system towards the lymph node. So in the lymph node, it will first fill the subcapsular uh, sinus space. So you can see it in this image here, which is popliteal lymph node. And if you would inject a fluorescently labeled dextrin, it will arrive in the lymph node within minutes and fills up the subcapsular sinus space. From here on, uh, fluid can take two directions, uh, which is uh, represented here. It can go via the subcapsular sinus space um, towards the next draining lymph node via an efferent, lymph node, uh, efferent lymphatic, then eventually drains into the blood circulation, or it can move via the conduit system uh, inside the parenchyma of the lymph node and can then project to a high endothelial venue, which is a specialized blood vessel. So it's been shown here, and you can see that the FITSI uh, labeled dextrin is moving inside these conduits and goes to the, goes to the blood vessel. Since um, the lymph that is arriving in the lymph node can contain all kinds of chemical information like small soluble antigens or pro-inflammatory factors, it's relevant where this information ends up. And the lymph node actually contains a filter function at the side of the subcapsular sinus where there is a molecular sieve that determines which um, size of molecules have access to the parenchyma. So if these molecules are bigger than 70 kilodeltons, they will drain via the subcapsular sinus and go to the next lymph node in the chain. While if they're smaller than 70 kilodeltons, they can have access to, um, to the conduit system and enter the, the parenchyma. And this can have um, important functional implications since it has been shown that uh, resident dendritic cell populations that are inside the lymph node and are closely associated with these conduits can take up um, small soluble antigens that are um, being delivered uh, to them via the conduit system. So the exact 3D ultrastructural information of the conduit network is unknown. And this can be important um, since we want to know which cells have access to this conduit network and um, have access to this soluble information. So the best 
image we have from the conduit system and the cellular players is from live microscopy, and which is um, schematically shown in here, where we view the system as a collagen core um, center with a basal membrane and the FRCs wrapping around it. And we know that in close contact, somehow there are the dendritic cells and the T cells. So resolving the 3D ultrastructure of the conduit in the cellular players will help us in various ways. So it would help us to improve our understanding of which cells and to which extent have access to the soluble information within the conduit. It will help us to understand how dendritic cells are able to take up this, this information. Do they, for instance, need specific cellular protrusions that poke inside the conduit or are there different mechanisms and uh, it would also help us to understand um, how FRCs are enwrapping the conduit and are able to exert contractile forces on the network and uh, are thereby able to regulate the tension within the lymph nodes. So in the next section, I want to discuss a couple of electron microscopy techniques that can be applied to learn more about um, structural information of tissues um, and I would also discuss some of their limitations. So first is scanning electron microscopy, in which we fix uh, an organ, in this case the, the lymph node, we cut it in half and then apply a conductive layer so it can be imaged. And then here you can see uh, such an image where I call it the collagen core here in cyan and part of the FRC in yellow and you can see the T cells surrounding it. <clears throat> so it has some limitations because we cannot actually feel deep inside the tissue. We get just a little bit of information that it's maybe incomplete and can also be unphysiological. So we're not quite sure if there is maybe another cell that is covering this structure or if this is a normal case. And if these spaces that we see in between here, if they're, they're physiological or not. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. We also applied this technique um, on a Kali macerated lymph nodes in which we um, in which we wash away all the cells, basically, and, and end up with a fibrillar um, collagen compartment and this will actually give us an extended view inside the lymph node and help us to understand well how the the, the ECM is, um, um, is organized. However, we have a lack of uh, cellular compartment. So another technique is scanning transmission electromicroscopy tomograms. And this is a technique where um, thin sections or relatively thick sections for, for electron microscopy, so around up to 400 nanometers, are being cut and imaged on the different tilting angles upon which um, a three-dimensional structure can be reconstructed. So here one can see um, an uh, example of the conduit with the FRCs surrounding it and we actually can get a high resolution image However, we have kind of a small field of view and also our information um, in 3D is kind of limited, which is up to 400 nanometers. So that would also not really help us to answer our research goals. Um, in fact, we could be able to use this technique again in the Akali macerated lymph nodes, where you can get really high resolution 3D information on the on the fibular compartment of the conduit and uh, used to reconstruct that under different tensional conditions. However, again, then we like the cellular compartment. Another uh, technique um, would be serial sectioning TEM, which uh, involves the manual sectioning followed by imaging of individual sections. And also with TEM, we can get nice images of the lymph nodes um, however, to do this manual sectioning and um, the individual imaging of sections is kind of an expertise demanding technique. It's kind of tricky where sections can be easily lost during collection and staining and handling. That's why we chose not to go for this technique. But in the end, 
and go for array tomography. Um, so array tomography um, involves serial sin sections that are collected in ordered arrays on a glass surface. And they can be imaged with either light and electron microscopes. So it has some benefits. So we can get a really large field of view with high axial resolution. Also the um, setup and, and imaging, uh, which can be done automatically is convenient. So in other techniques where the sample is being mailed inside the, the electron microscope, such as uh, scanning blood phase SEM or focus IM beam SEM, um, you actually lose the sample. And the benefit of array tomography in this case is that you uh, will always have your samples. If you want to go back and, and extend your field of view or you want to image something with a higher resolution, you can do this. So I would now go through the workflow of how we go from, from um, tissue collection to the 3D reconstruction. And um, uh, so I would now go to the, to the workflow of how we do the, um, how we collect our tissues and process them all the way to the 3D reconstruction. So we start with a transcardial perfusion fixation of, of our animals then harvest our lymph nodes. So we're interested in the center of the lymph nodes. So we use fibrotome sections, um, sectioning to, to um, get some thicker sections uh, from this part of the lymph node. Uh, and then we embed and contrast it, which takes about uh, five days. And if you're more interested in the, the contrasting that we use, you can follow this information and this link to uh, to see the direct protocol. And after embedding and contrasting, um, there will be sectioning and um, collection on the substrate about which uh, Robert will tell us a bit more later on. So I would focus now on, on the acquisition and uh, modifications of these data stacks and then the 3D uh, reconstruction. So we are using uh, a Zeiss FE SAM uh, Merlin CB Compact which is equipped with the Atlas V array tomography software. And we use a secondary electron detector to, um, mm -hmm. to image our samples. So the scans are um, being done in, in a couple um, steps. So we first um, start with an overview of, uh, of uh, our section. So we scan the whole um, glass surface and uh, define our our sections, our ribbons. We do this with a pixel size of a thousand nanometers and it will take us about two and a half hours uh, per mosaic, which you can see 12 of them here. So next uh, we do a low magnification scan um, to identify our sections. So this we scan with a hundred nanometer pixel size and uh, will result in about one minute, 20 seconds per, per section. So it can be seen here. So then in the software, you can identify all the different sections. Um, and then we scan a couple of them with a high uh, magnification and then the Vina region of interest. Then this region of interest can be automatically copied to every section and can then be scanned in a similar way so we chose to scan a field of view of uh, about 75 to 100 uh, micrometers with a pixel size of seven nanometers. And that, would, that took us about 20 minutes per section. And we ended up with um, a result like this. So for um, the complete scanning and the overview, low magnification and high magnification, it took us about 65 hours to do 181 sections. So we got a volume of approximately uh, 76 by 98 by nine micrometer, uh, which means that our section size was 50 nanometers. And we acquired in this uh, instance, in this case, uh, 28.3 gigapixels. So here you can see an example of, of how it looks like. We have a silicon waiver with our sections on top. We zoom in and we can see the different resolutions and we can go all the way to 
a seven nanometer uh, resolution. So after we did the acquisition, um, I have to mention that um, the software uh, tries to identify the same area on every um, on every section. However, it's not 100% accurate, so it can be off just a little bit. So when you combine the data set, you will see that it's not completely aligned. So we need to align it first to, um, to be able to do a proper 3D reconstruction. And we do this with some uh, free software. We use Fiji, which is a distribution of ImageJ bundled with lots of plugins. And I think it's very well known on the biologist. And uh, we start um, using um, the Trekkie M2 plugin, uh, which we use for landmark-based manual alignment of the image stack. And this basically means that you would uh, click some, some landmarks in one slide. So we use uh, mitochondria to do this and click the mitochondria in the next slide as well. And then the software can automatically align the images. So you end up with an approximate alignment and then to, um, to make it more precise, we use a TurboRack plugin in Fiji that can then automatically align uh, the image stack. So once you have an aligned image stack, the next step is to do annotation or segmentation, which means that you would um, define an object like a cell cytoplasm or a nucleus or a mitochondria belonging to a specific cell, and then draw the cell, the outline of the cell or the nucleus in, um, in every single section. And we also use the TrekEM plugin in, in Fiji to do this, um, which is very well documented. And if you wanna learn more about it, you can, uh, you can follow the links here above. So drawing with the mouse is kind of tedious. So uh, we used to like some hardware to make it a bit more convenient. So we use either um, a, a screen up on which one can draw with a pencil or some drawing pad. It would um, improve the efficiency of, of the drawing and also make it uh, more accurate. So after you're done drawing and um, and uh, so after you're done drawing and I want to continue with the 3D reconstruction, um, we have to export the data for TrekEM. And we do this as follows. So we define an area of interest. We use the ROI manager in Fiji to do this. Then we export every single object individually as a binary image stack, as well as the um, SEM images. So for a simple um, example, we, we have a cell cytoplasm and a cell nucleus, and then the SEM image stack. So we um, exported them separately, and then we will combine them uh, in Fiji, in which we use the, the um, different channels uh, to combine them into a single stack. Always make sure that the pixel sizes are correct. If not, you can correct them at this point. And one can also choose to do some optional processing. Uh, for instance, you can do some 3D smoothing if uh, your drawing wasn't that accurate. So always make sure that, um, that the end result is, uh, is accurate. So after you combine all your objects and uh, together with your SEM image stack into one image stack, you can import it into Bitplane Imaris. And there's different software that can do 3D reconstructions, but this is the one that, that we are using. Um, and from here, you can uh, reconstruct ISO surfaces from each object, which can then be um, used to visualize and, and do some quantitative analysis with. So this is an example of, um, of a reconstruction we did on a couple of T cells and can see how densely packed they are. And we did reconstructions of the cytoplasm, the nucleus, and, and the mitochondria.
Okay, so as you can see, um, qualitative visualization can be helpful. So one can interpret uh, tomography data in different ways. So you can use 3D reconstructed isosurfaces to visualize structures from different angles. One can play around with transparency, cutting planes, etc., to to visualize your information. One can also overlay it with electron microscopy data, as we just showed in the movie before. Uh, furthermore, you can also do a bit more uh, quantitative measurements. So Imaris will allow you to for instance, calculate volumes and analyze shapes and calculate contact areas. So whatever is your research question, um, there's, there's a different way to, um, to get that information out with these 3D reconstructions. So in the, to finalize, I will just show you um, some images of what is still work in progress. So here we can, um, can see our conduit system in gray with a T cell migrating over these FRC structures and a dendritic cell um, sitting onto this conduit system, which is in this complex um, in this uh, complex configuration with T fibroblastic reticular cells, which are shown here in magenta, green, and cyan. So with that, I would like to um, thank the sixth group. Uh, especially Anna Deert and Professor Michael Six, and the electron microscopy facility from ISD Austria, and Vanessa Zieden, Walter Kaufmann, and Daniel Gutel, and Ludwig Lovikar. So I want to finish with saying that um, to make 3D reconstructions properly, it's most important that these sections are cut properly and that they are wrinkle-free. So having wrinkles would really cause problems in in uh, making these 3D reconstructions. And having sections in a nicely organized uh, ribbons will also make it easier to do the acquisition. So next, Robert will tell us more about the technical solutions for serial sectioning for array tomography, and uh, he will show us how to do perfect sectioning. So thank you, Frank, for this useful information, and thank you for the introduction. What I would like to do, I would to the technical part of this uh, presentation. That means, what can you do in order to get nice serial sectioning? And how can you collect the serial sectioning without wrinkles onto the substrate? And also, a little bit of information, how to pre-prepare a sample. Before you start sectioning, you, of course, you have to do a kind of trimming of the sample. And this is displayed, and this I would like to show you in these few slides. So also here, there is a workflow. Very important before you start sectioning, you have to do a hydrophilization of the substrate. If it is not hydrophilic, the substrate, you really get, will get wrinkles of the sections. So that's a very important step. Also, trimming the sample has a profound effect of the section quality. I'm going to show you how to trim the sample with our EM trim system. Finally, when you start sectioning, you do serial sectioning. We have a new instrument in the market called ARTO3D, where you can set up the system in order to do uh, automated serial sectioning, which is helpful and useful, especially for manipulation of the sections. And after the section, you collect the section. I also want to show you how. And finally, you transfer the sample to or the substrate with the sections on it to a coating device for contrast enhancement and then you do the acquisition and export as Frank just told you. So let us start with this hydrophilization. I use our system, it's a, cold, it's a coating device which has a glow discharge function. What you see here, this is a silicon substrate, 25 by 25 millimeter. There is a loading device and a clamping device. So this substrate goes to this clamping device and will be clamped and finally transferred to this glow discharge device or plasma cleaner. You see this, here is the substrate, the clamping device inside this chamber of this 
uh, coating device. So I used a glow discharge of 220 seconds. And this, as I said, uh, it's a very important step before you start sectioning the sample. Otherwise, you would really have difficulties to get wrinkle-free sections uh, onto the substrate. Uh, while the system is running, while the, the glow discharge function is activated, I would like to show you how to do the streaming. So during the process of glow discharging or plasma cleaning, you can trim the sample. I use this our EM Trim 2, and I want to show you what what is really important for trimming a sample pride or ultramicrotomy. Here is a bad example. This sample is not nicely trimmed. You see, you need to have parallel edges and straight edges. And you will also see here is the area of interest. That is the tissue surrounded by a lot of embedding material. And the more you can remove from the embedded material, the easier the section will be. So the perfect trim sample looks similar like this. You have very parallel and straight edges and the area of interest is uh, more or less covers the so-called block face. That's a rather fast technique using the trim uh, two system. So you have here more or less four or five steps. And finally, you have a block face trimmed with nice edges here and also here with an orientation mark. I'm going to show you in this short movie how it works. So first, the sample is clamped and here the sample is set in this so-called rotation center. Then here we approach with this diamond miller to the sample surface here. As this one is a monolayer, that means you should not uh, touch or mill this surface, otherwise you will really get uh, away from all the material you want to have. In this way, as for monolayer, you would just do an orientation, not milling this surface. For bulky sample, you would mill the surface. So uh, we, you see how you can do this orientation of the surface with the trim tool, without making a cut of the block face. This has to be done in order to make a nice rectangular orientation. So you look at the tip here of the of the miller, diamond miller, and you look at also at this uh, reflected image of the miller. And by moving the miller from east to west, you look at the gap between this reflected uh, image and the miller itself. And this then, this gives you information, uh, the distance of the gap, uh, in which way you need to do this alignment. Alignment is done with this kind of tool. There is a special tool available with this two alignment screw. You can tilt the sample in this direction and also in the other direction in order to get a nicely orientated front face, especially needed for monolayers. After you have done this alignment, you simply tilt the sample by using this arm here and you do a four-side trimming process. It's a rather fast technique. Within minutes, you have done these four sides. At the end of this uh, process, you might need to have a kind of orientation mark. You know, here, if it is a very uniform sample, a homogeneous sample, you might have difficulties to see at the end of the uh, cutting process and you want if you want to do imaging you don't know where does my a single section ends and where does the next section continue so in this case you can do a kind of orientation mark here with the middle you just turn 45 degree and you cut a very small corner piece from the section this is here visible. And during the sectioning, you see these very small corners here, which is helpful for this orientation or alignment in the SCM. So once you have done this trimming and the, uh, the substrate is already uh, hydrophilic, so insert the substrate in this special made diamond knife, which has an angle of 35 degree. And you see it here, it's a rather large boat and you insert this uh, silicon substrate or glass substrate, depends on the need. Uh, and you can also do a kind of uh, length variation. That means length adjustment because this 
clamping device is placed into a slider and with the slider you can choose different lengths of the substrate. And once you have uh, selected the right length, you fill up the water boats with distilled water. You have here connection. This is also a very important thing is you once you have collected the section, you just turn this valve and then you drain the water very slowly in order to place nicely the section ribbon on the, onto the substrate. So before you start sectioning, you do need to do a kind of alignment procedure. The normal uh, sample knife alignment <clears throat> is done by tilting the, the knife in order to have a parallel light gap. For utilizing the automated section correction uh, or a section process, you move the knife from east to west in order to have a uh, same distance, gap distance from east to west. That's the only point you have to be aware when you do this uh, hardware alignment. So you move again from east to west or from west to east in order to have the same distance of the slide gap here. The next step is you select in the controller of the Arto 3D by pushing the mode button, the so-called 3D mode. So you call this 3D mode and you key in into the controller how many cuts per ribbon you want to have. And by pushing the next button, you can key in how many total cuts you want to have. And finally, you push after you have done a kind of correction because the specimen arm needs to have a certain uh, position as well. Then you start with this automated serial section process. I can show you an example here. And this example is a 14 nanometer sections in total 150 sections what you see here this is the first ribbon then automatically the system moves to the next position predefined position makes the next ribbon and finally you get three as it was programmed three ribbon nicely placed from the edge of the diamond knife uh, in the water what you see here this is the edge of the silicon substrate and there is a possibility with the software of the R2-3T to do automatically after the 3D sections are done, automatically, we call it release cut, pushes the sections above the substrate. We, and this release cuts has a different feed. In this case, it is 120 nanometer, whereas the section, the 3D sections has 40 nanometer. You see the color differences. And nicely, automatically, the sections ribbons are pushed or transferred above the substrate, which are finally placed under the substrate by opening the valve. You see uh, here, the water gets away, it will be drained, and very carefully the sections are placed onto the substrate. Once the sections are collected, you take away the substrates and transfer the substrate to the coating device. So we have really a very high density on a very small wafer. Here we have 150 sections onto a wafer with a, with a dimension of 25 by 25 millimeter. Another example I want to show you because maybe you, you don't want to have these release cuts because you would uh, uh, get rid of material which is useful so you want to continue because otherwise you would lose material due to the release cuts. In this case you have to manipulate the ribbons with the eyelash. I'll show you soon how it works. So we have this case, this is a C elegant sample. There are ribbons, uh, four ribbons in this case you see slightly this uh, silicon substrate corner here and you see already the four ribbons of the C elegance. At the end these are 300 sections, very long ribbons, four long ribbons, but at the end you don't select release cuts in the protocol, you need to use the eyelash to transfer the sample uh, ribbons from the edge 
above the silicon substrate, which is here. So you see, this is the corner of the substrate and they are now nicely placed above the substrate. And again, by opening the valve, you slowly remove the water and you carefully place this, uh, the, uh, the sections, ripples onto the substrate, which are finally then uh, transferred with the substrate to the coating device. What you see here on this image on the right side, it's a light microscope image. In this case, it was a yeast uh, uh, material embedded in EPON. But what, the, what I can show you on that slide is, it's a DIC, as an interference contrast light microscope image. This is the silicon wafer here, and these are the single sections which nicely uh, are adhered to each other and no wrinkles inside. And here you see the orientation mark, which, which is helpful for acquisition in or alignment in the SCN. So there are these four ribbons, and these four ribbons are removed from this boat. If you want to continue to get an additional 300 section, you simply push, uh, place a new silicon substrate in the water and you start sectioning again. This is possible because you haven't used the release cut. And this is what you, this picture, what you have seen after the coating device. We use also, or the, I used our coating device ACE uh, with five nanometer carbon uh, thread uh, coating in a pulsed mode. And that's image you have seen already from Frank. You see this here, these dark parts are the release cuts. And here, that part or this portion of the sections are the so-called 3D sections. And you easily can distinguish where does my release, my 3D sections end. So you start again from that side and you do the imaging until the release cuts begins and then you continue with the next ribbon. And finally, you get this image stack, in this case, as Frank showed you, uh, 150 sections, and you do the 3D, this, uh, 3D ring construction as uh, Frank has just told you. Also, at the end, I would like to say thank you for your interest. I hope I could uh, submit some useful information. Uh, if you have some questions, please let us know. We are here for the next 10 minutes for answering your question. Thank you again. Thanks, Frank and Robert. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So we have a question about, are there options for automatic segmentation of cells? Um, I can take that. Uh, so ideally, one would um, spend as least time as possible on uh, segmentation. And since these data sets can become quite large, uh, one could save a lot of time by semi-automatic segmentation. Um, as, a, as a rule of thumb, the better the contrast is, so the better you can distinguish the membranes of the cell and of the nucleus, the better you can do the segmentation. Um, so far, there are a couple of commercial products or um, and, and non-commercial um, application that one can utilize to, um, to do semi-automatic uh, segmentation. So one of them is, for instance, a microscopy image browser, which can be downloaded for free. Another one might be um, um, Elastic, and these um, these softwares they, um, they work on the principle of machine learning. So you have to um, draw on your sections and region of interest, and the computer will uh, learn and understand what is a cell and what is a nucleus. And if you feed it enough data, uh, this can then uh, the computer can then semi-automatically segment the cells. Um, but again, it, it all depends on the quality of your of your sections and how much time and effort you put in there to uh, segment them. 
Great. And we have a couple, we have a couple of questions, um, about, I think it's, this might be more geared towards Robert, but there are questions, but we have a question about, um, do you put glue on the edge of the block? And then uh, the yeah, follow-up is, um, how about cleaning the release cuts at the diamond edge? Yes, I will take these questions. Um, Yes, it is possible to, to put glue on it, but I would firstly, what I have noticed during the test phase, when I trim it with, my, <clears throat> with the diamond miller, you, you get a good adhesion of the section because of the milling marks you introduce in the, on the block faces edges. And this helps a lot to keep the sections together. However, there are some cases where the sections are separated. If I notice this during the sectioning, I put uh, a few drops of ethanol in the water to reduce the surface tension. Due to the surface tension of the water, the sections more or less are pulled apart. If this, in some cases, it is not possible to, to work with, it doesn't work with the with the uh, diamond mill and doesn't work with the ethanol. In this case, uh, I put a, a glue under the uh, block face and on the lower side of the block face. So this is a glue which I, it's, I call, we call it contact adhesive. And with this, with a mixture of this contact adhesive uh, with about 80% xylene, this works rather fine. So this is with a very small portion which is picked up with the, with the eyelash. I do uh, a, a very small layer on the, the, the lower edge of the trimmed block face. And this works really perfect. So then the sections definitely sticks nicely together. In respect of the release cuts, in the video, you haven't seen the complete process. Uh, when I lower the water or when I train the water, uh, as soon as the first few layers are in contact with the silicone, uh, I use my eyelash and just separate the, the uh, release cuts from the knife edge. So there is a good connection already of the sections on the silicon substrate. And then the, there is still water on the knife edge, which is uh, makes it possible to remove the release cuts. Okay, and we have um, two follow-up questions. The first is, what is the percentage of ethanol you were discussing earlier, or that you would use? The percentage of? Ethanol. Ethanol. Uh, I used the, the, the uh, about 90% ethanol, just a few drop, drop of ethanol. Okay, and then we have a question about how thin can you cut a section? How thin? This really depends on the, first of all, it, it depends on the, on, the, on the condition of the knife. You, of course, you need to have a nice, uh, well-reserved knife edge. It also depends on the embedded, on the embedding material and on the block face, on the size of the block face as well. The thinnest cut I have done was 15 nanometer, one five nanometer. Uh, that means the feet was set okay. on 15 nanometer. You always have to deal with compression. So in fact, maybe it's, it's not 15 nanometer, maybe it's 20 nanometer. You have to consider the compression as well. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then we have a question um, about would the image quality of mitochondria cristae and what magnification, or sorry, what would be the image quality of mitochondria cristae and what mag what magnification is useful for details to image the mitochondria? Okay, um, I will take this one. So the the resolution, the Excel resolution, you can go up to a couple of nanometers. So it would be, it would be, um, you could actually see the the cristae. However, maybe not in as much detail as you wish, um, especially for three D reconstruction. Since, um, as Robert told you, the sections can be maybe fifteen nanometers. So you would lose, um, you use lose information in the lateral resolution. But um, I would say for this, for this application, maybe. Um, um, TEM uh, might be better, but uh, you can give it a try with with SEM and see um, how well you get your resolution. Depends on, on what you want to see in the end, how fine of a structure. 
Okay. And then we have a question that you were talking about during your presentation, Robert, about um, wrinkling. So how does a wrinkled section affect the 3D reconstruction? I think it's a drastic effect, uh, but it's maybe a question which can be answered by Frank much better than by me, because I can imagine if you do, uh, if you need to do a structure, uh, uh, investigation of a structure and suddenly it is not uh, like it should be because of the wrinkle, right. then I think mm. 3D reconstruction doesn't work fine. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but can, uh, maybe Frank can give you. I can, can add a little bit to that. Yeah, so um, linear uh, deformations are actually fine to correct for. So they, these are just um, um, moving things around and rotations, right? So, but wrinkles, they cause nonlinear deformations. And uh, that means that maybe you align something on the left side of your image and on the right side, um, it's not properly aligned. So that would um, yeah, cause problems in your, in your um, you know, 3D reconstruction. So there are options to to um, deal with this kind of stuff, but it, it gets kind of complicated. So the better your sections are, um, you don't have to worry about this if, if you can do everything uh, wrinkle-free. Okay, and how long does it take you normally to um, segment a cell? Um, so if we talk about manual segmentation, uh, depending on the complexity of the cell, um, I would say, for instance, for a T cell in, in 180 slices would take a couple of hours, maybe half a day if you want to do everything with mitochondria and nuclei and, and so on. And if you have more complex cells, like um, dendritic cells, or uh, one can imagine neurons which have many protrusions, um, that can be in the order of, uh, of days, so maybe two days or something. You, uh, uh, you you can you can draw these cells yeah okay and then i think we've got time for one or two more questions so what can be done in case the sections don't stick together although the sample has already been trimmed or has been trimmed with the trim too if the sections don't stick together yeah if they don't stick together yeah, yeah this is what i what, what I told you first if they really okay. don't stick together then i would I would uh, at least I would to try to, to put ethanol in the water. This helps to reduce the surface tension. And in the in the last case, and, the, and if that, this doesn't help, then I would use the mixture of contactive teeth if glue. Yeah. And um, I think this is our last. Yes, this is our last question that we have time for. So. Um, there is. Okay. Sorry. Another question I just have seen is, wouldn't it be better to cut blocks rather than pyramids for even section yes. sizes? In principle, uh, yes, because this, the size or the this, this, this section itself gets larger and larger, but uh, for two, 300 sections, it's not so, so drastically large. The thing is, when you use the 90 degree or knife, trimming knife, which produces the, the blocks and then you have even section sizes mm -hmm. it works fine it works it works good what i have noticed uh you the the edge itself is not as i would like to have this in respect of uh, section quality i i have good uh, experience with pyramids so this was also the reason why could go down to 50 nanometer. I doubt this with the block uh, trimming, with the 90 degree trimming knife to, to, to generate the block, uh, you can section that thin. Okay. The, the surface or the, the knife edge or the block edge is not as good as it is by using the 45 uh, diamond trimming knife in order to make pyramids. This is what I have noticed. That's good to know. So for thick section or thicker, mm -hmm. thicker section, yes, you can do this block trimming with the 90 degrees uh, a trimming knife, diamond trimming knife. But when you want to get thin section, when it's so around 30 nanometer or even less, then I would really recommend to, to use the, the pyramid shape. Okay. 
Well, that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Frank and Robert, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Leica Microsystems. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page in bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Leica Microsystems and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.